Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. Good morning, everybody. Again, my name is Rodney Gonzalez, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Ville Church. We want to welcome you and thank you for coming. We know that, uh, again, you can choose to go anywhere, and we are glad that you're here with us. I do believe that this church is a very precious church and has a great heart and just love to to be one that can bring the Word of God and uh, to oversee and care for the church. Um, This morning, I'd like to talk about um, uh, three ways or three mindsets uh, about living this life of a Christian or, or sanctification uh, and also s- salvation and these mindsets that are out there and then I like to talk about a better way and it's called the gospel way but before then if, let me pray one more time father um, I'm so glad that I don't have to come up here and perform and I don't have to worry about how it's gonna go um, because you God are, are doing the work and have done the work for us um, you performed uh, the greatest for us by dying on the cross and, and, and doing the hardest work. And so I want to trust in that today. And if uh, there are others here like me that tend to fall into that place of, of uh, wanting to earn or perform or, or make things happen, that we'd be able to rest in you today and to know that to, you are our Sabbath, you are our rest. And God, I, I just pray that you would... Um, Help us to believe that. Give us that faith that we need in Jesus' name. Amen. So right now, I believe there are uh, some mindsets, like I said, when it comes to Christianity that, that are out there and have, uh, that are in our culture and are, are um, prevalent, and they're, they're inside the church and they're outside the church. A quick description is, number one, you have to be good to go to heaven. You have to be good to go to heaven. Number two, you must work hard to go to heaven. Or number three, because God is love, you automatically go to heaven. Those are three. And I gave them names, okay? I gave these names, and, and of course, these aren't real words, but um, I thought it would be good to help us remember and just to have a reference point. But the first name for the first one is the gooder dunners. The gooder dunners. Okay? The second one is... Uh, up to me's, the up to me's. And then the third one is God is love people, right? So the good are doneers, they focus on being good, high morals externally. Uh, they get a lot done. That's why they're good, or they try to be good and they try to get a lot done, good or doneers. Uh, they went out and they told everyone that Christians are good and everyone else is bad. Christians are good because they go to church, they quote scripture, uh, they sing religious songs, and they do this consistently. They told them that only good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. But when it comes down to it, after a while, the gooder dunners were no more more moral than the non-Christians, so they lost their credibility real quick. Unfortunately, the one thing that stuck with the culture was the belief that says this, all I need to do is to be good to go to heaven 
be a good person, and I will go to heaven because bad people go to, go to hell. And when you go to someone and if you bring up the word religion or heaven or any of this, they'll just say, I'm a good person. That's the first thing they'll tell you. And that's prevalent in our culture. And that, that was preached to, the, to them. They, they, they have been cultured that. We, I believe uh, those that are good or doners are responsible for that. Uh, and, and I'm not looking at good or doners as if I'm better than them or, or haven't been one of them. I know there are times in my life that I've been towards a good or doner, right? Uh, so, but Jesus said, and Jesus, uh, and this is in Mark 10, 18, he says, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, Mark 10, 18. So if only God is good, that means that there are only, what? Bad people. Uh, everyone else is bad. So the opposite of the gooder dunners that said that um, there will be no good uh, it's the opposite of what the good are done says. So in other words, there will be no good people in heaven. No, not one. There will only be forgiven people in heaven. There's only one or the other. God is the only one good that makes the rest of us not good. Now, I know that's hard for our culture where uh, we're spoken to, you know, don't speak bad about yourself and low self-esteem, and, and I'm, not, I'm not making fun of that or any of that. That's real stuff. And I'm not saying this to make you look bad or to feel bad about yourself, but the reason why I say this is because it's the actual thing that if we think we're good can keep us from knowing Christ. Now, the up-to-me's tell the world that there is so much that they must do for God. This one is also prevalent because it says to the culture, somehow you can earn your way or at least pay God back. The only thing is, is it becomes overwhelming after time and the world is like, no way, I'm out. I ain't doing all that work. Salvation, Ephesians 2.9 says in the New Living Translation, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So no one, not one of us can boast about it. So right there, this is not a reward for any good. Salvation. And then the God is love. Tell the world that God is love, but God has no power to change them or make any difference. The world, after a while, sees no different outcome in their life, and so they just learn, as long as you say that God is love, you're good. Romans 6, 1 and 2, Paul's addressed this. It says, while then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? And what does he say? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Diving a little bit deeper, the good of Dunners, it's all about doing good. God saves us, but I must do my part. God did his part, I got to do my part, right? The Bible is a book about telling us what to do and what not to do. That's how they view the Bible. They can quote you the commands about prayer and going to church, obeying the law, and being good citizens. Usually, they're doing good on the outside, as I said, and they're disciplined, which usually makes them 
ask the question, why aren't others doing the same? Their answer to problems can be very simplistic, like if people would just do what the Bible says, then they would not be in the situation that they're in. They're pretty hard to be around these gooder dunners. They really are. The up to me is God saves me, but it's up to me to do my very best to obey. But most of the time they feel heavy and they like they never can seem to measure up like the gooder dunners do. The Bible is a book that talks about a God who loves me, but it's also about how he requires so much from us. They usually can go on for some good periods of times where they are so devoted and then yet they fall off. But man, when they fall off, they feel really, really bad. So much shame and so much guilt. They look at the good of dunners and say, like, why do they have it all together and not me? And they ask the question, will I always be this way? Will it always be so heavy? The goddess loves says, I said the sinner's prayer, I asked him to come into my heart, and it doesn't matter how I live because God is love. Everyone knows that just the other day, he was picked up for battery on his girlfriend for the third time. Also, he shows a picture of three other girls inappropriately that he has going on at the same time. He'll probably come to work all sauced up, Hopefully the boss won't notice and have to ask him to go home like he did last time. But no one says anything to him because he has that God is love, Jesus talk. All of these mindsets, all of these views, all of these ways of life uh, lead to defeat and discouragement and ultimately disillusionment. And they're prevalent in our culture. And, 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 and why I point this first part out before I go into a better way is because we're seeing this on full display in America. With social media and our technology and connectivity, pretty much anyone's life can be blown up just like that, good or bad, right? And because this has been spoken to our culture, it has given people the mindset that either you got to be good or it really doesn't matter, or you gotta pay a heavy price, and all these, again, lead to just more heaviness and bondage. It's a misrepresentation of the gospel. So I wanna talk to you this morning about another way when it comes to this life. It's called the gospel way. But before I do, I wanna look at this passage real quick because it might set up the stage a little bit more, and it's John 15, verse five. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, and he is talking about this. He says, I am the vine, Jesus says he is the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me, and I in him bears much fruit, because apart from me, you can accomplish nothing. Now, real quickly, going back, the good are done, they will focus on the word remains. When they say, this is how you bear fruit, is you need to remain, and they'll give you five things you can do to remain. Now, the up to me's will focus, focus on bears much fruit. They will tell you all the things that we need to do to work on. And the God loves me says this scripture is usually, uh, will usually dis, uh, dismiss this and say, we'll leave that up to the pastors. Just stick with John 
So when we look at this verse, it's talking about the outcome of our life, right? The outcome is fruit. Another word is called sanctification. Sanctification is the process that God brings us through to make us conform into the image of God or more like Christ, the change, right, the outcome. And that's what we see here. So I would like to talk to you about the gospel way of sanctification. Sanctification is God working in us, but it's all by grace. It's all by grace that God is working in us. It's not something that we can do on our own. It's by grace. In the same way we receive salvation, salvation, which is justification, which is really the forgiveness of sins, the way we receive that, which was what Jesus did, and it was by grace. Grace is something you don't earn, you don't work for, it's given to you freely. It was the work of God in our lives. God worked that. He gives us faith by grace as a gift. This is very important. See, the beginning of the good or done or the beginning of the up to me's or the God is love, if they don't get this in the beginning, that's how everything gets skewed and goes another way. If we don't learn that when, it first, when we first comes to Christ, it's so important that the true gospel says that God does it all. God does it all. Not we do our part and God does his part. We contribute to our salvation. One thing, can anyone guess? Our sin. That's what we contribute. We contribute our sin. And that's why Jesus died, because of our sin. Now, can you believe that? The only contribution that we make to being forgiven is our sin. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, that we can do to save ourselves. That's salvation. If there is, then that means that Jesus died for nothing, and it was not good enough. It was not good enough. Now, can you believe that? The only contribution, again, is our sin. That is what the up-to-me's believe. They have to do something. See, it was by grace through faith in Christ alone for our justification, and it's the same for our sanctification. It's very easy for us to believe, those that are believers and Christians, that yes, Jesus saved me. But now we're flipping it here to this outcome, this fruit that's going to be bare. So when we look at John 15, 5 again, it says, Jesus is not giving us a formula on how to bear fruit. And many times we look at that part and we say that and we understand that, but that's not at all what it's saying. If we are saved, that means we remain. Remain, another word for it is continue. I would like to use the word connected. A branch connected to Jesus, the vine. That is, he saved us and engrafted us in and connected us to him. So, If we're connected to Jesus as a branch, we're connected to him as a vine. The vine which is used produces the fruit. This means that Jesus does does the producing, not us. So let me ask you something. Does it make sense that if a branch is connected to Jesus, it would not produce fruit? Of course not. There's no way that Jesus' vine and any branch connected to him would not produce fruit. It'll produce fruit. 
Many people will say we must remain in Christ as some type of action plan or, or something on our part. And then only then, if we stick to this remaining slash action plan, then we'll bear much fruit. But that is not all what this passage means. How do we know? Well, Jesus clarifies this by saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. See, separated from Jesus, we get no Jesus. We get no fruit because it's Jesus that brings about the fruit. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. We no more sanctify ourselves and save ourselves as we do no more justify ourselves. How many of you do, let me ask you this question, serious question. How many of you today saved yourself? You can raise your hand. No, don't raise your hand. Lived a perfect life or better yet died to pay your sins. I ask this question because in the same way we do not sanctify ourselves, bear fruit ourselves, obey God by ourselves, and do any good at all because all the good is Christ working in us. Philippians 2.13 says it this way. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Can I get an amen? Who's working here? You can answer, who is working here? That's right. And what does he do? He gives us the desire and the power. I don't know about you, but when I don't want to do something, right, and I know it's wrong that I don't want to do this, I don't do it, right? But he gives us the desire now to either do what he asks us to do or to refrain from doing what he asks us to refrain from. Now I want to give you two illustrations, true story. First one was when I was 17 years old. I had never really read a Bible, but this guy, this next-door neighbor started talking to me about, you know, things in the Bible, and I was just like, wow. Now, I had been brought up Catholic to, at that point, and, um, and so I started asking questions, and I went to go back to him over and over. And about two months later, uh, we're talking, and I remember going outside, and it was a starry night, and I raised my, my head to the sky, and I said, God, if you could change me, then I'll serve you. And I remember instantly, that next day or that evening, um, things were different. Like, I had girlfriends from the age 13, and I was about 17 that whole time. We lasted about two years. There was always insecurity and jealousy. One thing or another would mess it up, and I, I blame it all on me, honest to God. Instantly, I, never, I didn't feel jealous, and I was in a relationship almost two years with this person. I was not jealous. The crazy thing is I could have friends, girlfriends. I got voted most popular in, high school, in a junior high, family. I mean, there was no lack of people around me, but yet there was this loneliness on some of the greatest nights of my life, something missing. And immediately after I said that, the loneliness was gone. I believe it was already, God already given me the desire to say, hey, if you'll change me. But the, the catch was, if you'll change me. Like, really, if you're, gonna, if you're real, you need to change me because you ain't going to change me. Obviously, God was already doing something by praying that prayer. And things changed. 
I worked for my uncle uh, at an automotive shop, and he had indecent posters everywhere. There was wall space. Didn't bother me at all. That next day, it bothered me. Bothered me to the point that I think he was gone for a couple days, and I tore them all down and threw them away. I had to answer to him for that, and I think that was the end of my career there. Crazy. Like, how does that happen? The sad thing, though, is I didn't have the right theology around it, so it wasn't really supported, and it turned into, you know, it's up to me later on and became very heavy. Well, that's a longer story. My second illustration is the flip side to that. See, even when you have Christ in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him, we can also resist him. This one's not such a pretty story. I know we all want pretty stories. There was a time where I almost lost my marriage, my family, and ultimately my life. I began to believe lies and, and thought that God wanted something else for me. I began to talk to another woman and resisted God. The more I resisted, the more I became trapped, the more I believed, uh, uh, the more I believed lies. The feelings I got from talking to her became like a high, like a drug, but at the same time I was wrestling with God. This led to more and more lies and more and more resisting. But by God's grace, the Lord came to rescue and deliver me from this disillusionment. I say this to tell you that it doesn't work. It just does not work. And if God only wants what is best for you and you truly belong to him, then he will get his way and he will deliver you from resisting him. It will be painful, may even cost you your life. We look at the book of Acts with Ananias and Sapphira. They didn't make it. But God is faithful to keep his word when you belong to him. And he will come get you and it's just a matter of time. It's this little insert there. That's why when it comes to any freedom I ever experience, the only answer is Jesus. Don't get me wrong, as you're, you know, heavy in an addiction, there are, um, you know, wise counsel and things to do that you can do to help with that. But at the end of the day, if Jesus is not the one to give you the power and the ability and even to want to even start trying to do those things, then your answer is going to be the mechanism that keeps you from doing it and not Jesus himself. And that's all I can say is that the things that I've been addicted to uh, and then still come my way and sometimes uh, uh, want to entrap me, it's only Jesus that would give me one day of freedom or, or a hundred or whatever it is. It's only Jesus. Jerry Bridges says it this way, Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Can anybody say amen to that? Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And I can tell you, that time in my life when I was turning the other way and resisting God was the worst that I've gone through in all of my life. It was horrific. It was horrible. But it was never beyond God's grace, God's reach. But our best days are never so good that you, you're beyond the need of God's grace. 
Every day, I need God's grace. Even to come and speak this morning is all by God's grace. Why? Because it's a work of God's free grace in where we are being renewed in the whole man, the whole being. God wants you to be healthy and whole as a person. See, the good donors are like, he just wants you to be good because you need to be good so you don't burn, right? You know, the ones that are up to me are like, man, I've got to do this. I've got to do something on my part, right? All those lead to frustration. But if God is truly good, and if he truly wants what's best for us, then that is the motivation that God wants us to have. Anything else is pride, self-confidence, it's, it's focus on us and not focus on God. It leads to just more in bondage. Amen. What is God's motivation here? If he wants what's best, he wants our whole person. What is his motivation? Why would good God want this? We must believe that God is not holding out on us, but rather he wants this, that's what's best for us. So since he wants what's best, he tells us what that is. He says this is what's best. He's not holding out. He does not keep it a secret. He does not give us, uh, he also gives us the power to live it out. He just doesn't tell us, but he gives us the power to live it out. He died for that. The only thing that we had when it came to salvation was our faith, and that faith, he gave it to us by grace. Second Timothy, I mean, uh, Titus 2 verse 11 says this, for, great, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What is the appeared part? It's Jesus. Jesus is the grace that has appeared to bringing salvation for all people. It's a person. It's the person of Christ. It's not just the free pass. It's not just the free gift. It's a person. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness. He just didn't redeem us to save us and for forgiven, but also from the lawless deeds to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He died to deliver us from lawless deeds, which is breaking God's law. He died to purify us, sanctify us, to be zealous for God's works. He died for that. Many times we believe he just died to save us. It's called the double blessing. The forgiveness of sins, which is justification, and also the power for holiness, which is sanctification. In salvation, we're not just saved from the guilt of our sins and then not the power of the sin. No, we're saved from both. The hymn Rock of Ages says it like this. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power.
That blood that flowed from Jesus saves us from both. In salvation, we do not get a Christ who does it halfway job. He saves us from the guilt of sin and the power of sin. He goes all the way to save us from both. He justifies and sanctifies, and we must trust him to do both in our life. So far, there's no doing here, is there? So far, you have not heard me say there's something that you need to do. It's important. We must trust him. Trust him to save me from its guilt and sin's power. The message I want you to get is one of hope and not guilt, not drudgery or shame and despair. It's so important that we get this, and then I'll conclude in just a minute here. The reason why it's important is because the Veal Church and churches that truly want to love each other, they are going to hold dearly to their heart as God does um, justice, right? They're going to hold to their heart racial reconciliation. They're going to hold to their heart dearly that God says to love one another. It's very important that that in and of itself does not become something that we put on others to do like this is the answer and then get surprised that they are not doing it and be heard about it when maybe in the beginning they thought they were supposed to do something to save themselves and keep themselves saved. It's also to protect you, church, from the disillusionment that there truly are believers, the gooder dunners, the up to mirrors, the God is love, and get so hurt and discouraged when you don't see the fruit that only God can do in their life. Now, I wouldn't put it on them to say, like, you're bad. We're all bad. I wouldn't put it on them to say, hey, I'm so different than you, or I believe different, or you got it wrong. I would invite them to hear the gospel that none of us got it right and that Jesus is the only one that got it right and invite them to this easier, lighter way of life where Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is life. Come to me, all you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's hard to be a gooder dunner. It's hard to be an up to mirror, and it's totally discouraging to be a God is lover. It is hard. It's not freedom. It's not life. It's not the best that Jesus has for us. But I promise you that the church inside and out is becoming more and more disillusioned because we are getting more and more farther from the gospel. More and more farther that this book, this Bible is not about me, it's not about you, it's not about do's, it's not about don'ts. It's about a story, the story of Jesus Christ. It's about a person that comes to give his life to do everything he can so that he could get you. And there's nothing that you're going to be able to do to accomplish what's in here in part of yourself. That's why he never allows us to have heroes in the Bible. Every single person that was on page, all their dirty laundry was laid out, and they failed over and over and over and over again. 
The people that were in slavery for a lot of years under the hand of, of Egypt are now free and God has given them everything they need and they begin to complain and God begins to deal with them. Why? Just to show you that when you think you have everything, right, that we, without Christ, are unable to obey even when we have it all, even when we've been set free. 20 years, over 20 years of walking with God, I just gave you a little part of my story, but I could show you of ups and downs and ins and outs and going through all those phases. But thank God that God is the one that's doing the work and not me. Because it would just stop there. And it does for many. It does for many. You know that Christian that always read their Bible, always asked you to go to church, was always trying to do the right thing, and one day they're gone. Like there is no Jesus in sight in their life. Like they are cold, they are hard, they are a rock. Most of them blame the church, right? Or they blame God. It was, he was a means to an end. He was a way to get what we want in this life. Especially when there's success. Especially when your life does change. See, as my life was changing, it's very easy for me to focus on, oh, this is the right way because my life is changing. But what happens when it couldn't change anymore? What happens when I would fall from that? There's no recovery if you don't realize that the beginning was you brought your sin to salvation. That's what's your contribution. And that God freely in his love by grace gave you salvation, changed your life, came into your life, and washed you from your sins and continues to do so wherever you're at. That's the reason, one of the main reasons, you know, I, I, I don't know what it is, but like I pray as a pastor and my, I'm always thinking about how are things affecting the church? What are those messages they're seeing and they're hearing? And my heart goes out for the church. It goes out for myself, too. <laughs> it goes out because we have these messages that are being publicized. And the church looks ridiculous now. I have a hard time saying the word Christian, saying the word evangelical, saying the word anything like that. Pastor, definitely not. It's ridiculous. Why? Because we, it's been made a muck. It's been made a mess because it started with man in his way and him doing something and not the gospel. So most of the time if you're around me and if God ever comes up, the very first thing I say is I'm the worst person in this room and that's usually amongst all unbelievers. And they don't know what to do and they freak out. The second thing I say is that there ain't no good people, only God is good. And I'm the worst one. It's not alone that we were bad, but we we're also dead in our sins, unable to be alive. I believe that's my state before Christ came into my life. I didn't know anything better about those things that were on the walls. I didn't know any better about my jealousy and loneliness. I didn't know any better. I didn't know any, I didn't even know it really was there and that it was an issue and that it's hurtful, that it's harmful, and that God doesn't want that in my life. I didn't know that. I was dead to God and alive to this world. But when Christ comes in, the Bible says we're now dead to this world and alive to God. And if I make it to heaven, it would only be that that is true of God in my life. To be continued, right? I don't ever want to think that I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those that are never going to lose my faith, never turn from God. 
I remember for the first time I heard a pastor say, stop reading your Bible, stop praying. Now, I don't think he meant it literally, but what he was trying to say is you're using that to earn your salvation. It's a heavy load. And as I started to ponder on that, it no longer was a burden to read my Bible. I wanted to read it. it made, that made sense. Because guess what? The only person that suffers when we don't read the Bible is ourselves because it's a beautiful love letter of God. Even when it doesn't make sense, it's like it doesn't make sense. But this is crazy. There's no way this other stuff, could, this could be in here unless it's God. God meets us in the places when it doesn't make sense. Matter of fact, that's where he's at, where it's hard. It is not always going to make sense unless God, right, does his work in us. So I want to close here. So what is our hope? Our hope is the gospel, the better way. The love of Christ is in the gospel, the love of Christ, not just the mechanism, not just the way, but the love of Christ in the gospel will begin to compel you to live for Christ and die to your sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This will compel us. 2 Corinthians 14, last verse says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. The death of Jesus is precious. And therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live shall no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them was raised again. Live for him is a better way. Live for him because he died for us. Kenneth Wist, I guess how you say his name, does a great job in translating the word compel says it like this, for the love which Christ has for me presses on me from all sides, holding me to one end and prohibiting me from considering, considering any other. That's on my best days, right? Wrapping itself around me in tenderness and giving me an empowering motive, an empowering motive. Man, isn't that so true? God's love compels us. That's our hope. That we trust that God has saved us from sin's guilt and its power. That we would trust that God's love is much better and it compels us. It holds us. It prohibits us to consider any other way that will free us from the drudgery, the heaviness of the to-do tasks, of the having to get it done, of having to pay God back, of having to be right, of having to be in control, of having to figure it out, of having to make it happen. It's up to me, right? Heaviness. See? Jesus knows what's best. God knows what's best, and he gave his son Jesus. He gave us his best. So we would no longer have to work. 
so we would no longer be under that. So if a good work comes, if fruit comes from us, not if, but when, because it's a when, not an if, when it does, is Christ. Guess what? The good thing about that, there's much more there. God will continue to convict you of your sin, and he'll continue to encourage you to live and, and love others, love him and love others. He'll continue to bring about fruit, patience when you had no patience, right? Confessing your wrong when you didn't want to confess your wrong. Like he'll, he'll start to bring about this fruit in your life. And then you'll see your part when you do the opposite, right? And he brings that forgiveness again, that hope again. Because his hope, his grace, his forgiveness is everlasting. He's rich in mercy. And thank God he's rich in mercy. This gives us the, the ability to be able to just confess our sins. Because he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. If we could have the worship team come up. I mean, uh, Kevin come up. <laughs> He's like the Trinity, right? He plays the music, sings the song, says the prayer, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So what we find here as we take the Lord's Supper is a, is a reminder. And that's what we need. How do you grow in this? We need to be reminded every single day of the gospel. Hearing that good news. I don't know about you, but you hear it and it's like brand new again. Like, what? He died? He died on the cross? Yeah. Over and over. Right? And so as we take a Lord's Supper, this is a reminder. As we take of the bread, Jesus said, take this bread. He broke it, gave it thanks, and gave it to his disciples. He says, eat it, right? In remembrance of me. We must keep this constant in our lives. Focus on it. And then he took the cup. He poured it out and says, this is my blood being poured out. This is what the song of Rock of Ages is talking about. That water and the wine was coming from his side. And what was it for? As you eat of the bread and as you drink of the wine, right, you drink of the juice, remember that what? He hides us from sin's guilt and sin's power. Maybe it's been a long time that you've really feel, felt forgiven. I want you to know that you're already forgiven. Because Jesus died for your sins and my sins. Maybe you've been just frustrated with others. Why are they not getting together? And you realize you're the good or done man. And it's hard. It's a hard life to live that life. You can give yourself a break today. Because why? As you eat and you drink, you realize Jesus died for good or donners. Jesus died for up to mirrors. And Jesus died for God is love. And there is a better way, the gospel way. The word of the Lord. God bless you, church.